Hey, what's good, everybody? It's Cedric Warren here, your host of Said Talk. Get it? Like TED Talk, but it's me. Couple things. First of all, uh, I want to make sure everybody's out here being safe and uh, adhering to all the restrictions and anything that's in place in your state, county, whatever it may be. Uh, please take this coronavirus thing seriously so we can all get back to what we are doing in our normal lives. I know it is definitely throwing a wrench in a lot of our plans, especially our summer plans, too, man. I know a lot of us wanted to travel and go places and stuff like that. I'm one of them. So, uh, But another thing I got, too, is said talk is now on Twitter, so y'all be sure to follow us as there as well. Uh, follow us at said underscore talk, same as the Instagram handle. So it's easy to remember. Uh, we'll be posting podcast links, merchandise and everything else on there. Uh, so go to there for everything that is said talk. Now, it's episode 20, kind of a benchmark for us. Uh, it's interesting because this podcast got started back in November when I was uh, reduced to part time with my job. And I had more free time. Now, you know, five months later, uh, again, more free time. So even though uh, I'll be starting a new full-time gig soon, uh, this is still pretty good to, you know, have this come of that. So with that being said, I got my guest here, uh, Mr. Hamilton Grant. So say what's up, man. Man, what's going on, Sid? How are you? I'm doing good, bro. I appreciate you being on and I appreciate you taking the time to connect with us and everybody that listens, man. No, I appreciate you and congratulations on your 20th episode. I feel special. We've come a long way since uh, Brookfield Road. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So just to do a quick background for anybody that might not know, uh, Ham and I went to the same high school and I'm, I'm going to call him Ham on this interview because that's how we knew oh, absolutely. him. Absolutely. That's how we knew him back in high school. So uh, Ham and I went to the same high school, Richmond Northeast High School, uh, class of 2007. Honestly, hands down, one of the best classes to come out of there. Uh, and I'm, just, I'm not just saying that just because I'm a part of it. I look at what people are doing now and I really feel like, man, we're up there doing it too, man. So proud of everybody that came out of there. So uh, yeah, man, we'll go ahead and get started. We'll jump into it. And uh, so just introduce yourself. Uh, Tell us who you are, where you're from and what line of work you're in. Sure. So again, I appreciate you having me on. It's an honor to talk with you, Said My name's Hamilton Grant. I am a candidate for Richland County Council, District 8, Richland County, located in our capital city of Columbia, South Carolina. Kind of get into that a little later on. But yeah, I'm born and raised in Columbia, South Carolina, Richland County. Um, product of Richland School District 2, um, E.L. Wright Middle School, Richland Northeast High School, Go Cavs. Uh, once I graduated in 2007, uh, continued my higher education at South Carolina State University. There, um, I marched on the prize marching one-on-one band. Uh, was a drum major my junior and senior year. Uh, my junior year pledged Kappa Kappa Psi National Honorary Band Fraternity. And then my senior year, I pledged the Omega Psi Phi Fraternity Incorporated, root to the Q's. For sure. Um, but in 2011, I uh, graduated with a degree in marketing and business administration. Um, upon graduating from South Carolina State uh, in 2011, I moved from South Carolina to Huntsville, Alabama, um, to work on my Master's of Business Administration at Alabama A&M University. So I'm a proponent and a big advocate for uh, historically black colleges and universities. Um, so while there working on my master's, I had the opportunity to work in the office of the president at Alabama A&M, which taught me a, a lot uh, when it comes to higher education. So 
Upon graduating in 2014, relocated back to Columbia, went to work full time uh, in a company my father started. My father started a company so 18 years ago called Grant Business Strategies. Now it's Grant Business Advisors, where we work with small businesses, commercial clients and churches. We're helping them uh, acquire new financing um, for new construction projects, help them refinance existing debt, uh, work out problem loans, uh, put together strategic, strategic alliances and partnerships. Uh, and so I've been full time with the company uh, since 2014. Um, I, I guess uh, growing up uh, and during the, the summers and, and what have you, whether it's college, high school, middle school, I always worked with the company, but full time, yeah. uh, I've been with the company since 2014. Nice. Um, outside of that, I'm a huge proponent of the community because I believe, you know, I am who I am because of people that poured into me. Um, and so I'm a big proponent of giving back. I'm the uh, past and media president of the Columbia Urban League Young Professionals here in Columbia. Uh, I have co-chaired um, for the past three years, Famously Hot New Year's, which is South Carolina's largest free New Year's Eve event, which brings thousands not only from the state of South Carolina, but all over to the South uh, on New Year's Eve. And I am the youngest elected board of trustee member for any co public college or university in the state of South Carolina, and I would say for any college or university in the state. Um, and. Again, currently I'm a candidate, Richland County Council District 8, the uh, district that I was born and raised in, that I grew up in. Um, so it's an honor to run, to uh, serve the people that have poured so much into me so we can do the same for the next generation. For sure. That's big, man. That's big. And like I said, John, like I said, 07, man, we, we out here doing it. Uh, so I'm going to just pick, I'm gonna pick out a couple of things there. And uh, we'll, like I said, we'll, you know, we'll deviate for a few seconds. But I'm glad that you mentioned uh, your education. And I actually did an episode, maybe episode six, I think it was, about historically black colleges universities. And the thought is, and as we kind of talked before we got started about how they're still producing a lot of good people, there's still a need for them. And I talked about that in in that episode too. Uh, my mom is a graduate of an HBCU, uh, has done very well in her career, raised two boys, put both of them through college uh, as well. Um, my grandmother is one. Uh, I just know a lot of people who graduated from HBCU. So just kind of talk about um, you know, uh, talk about like what attending those schools did for you uh, and, and why you chose to do so. Absolutely. I've, historically, black colleges and universities since their existence uh, has had a wealthy track record of taking students where they are in life uh, and making them amazing leaders in the field that they go into. Um, the list can go on and on of notable alums from South Carolina State. You can you can pick the school and it can it can do the same. For sure. Uh, but they they've all produced leaders. They've all produced great people, and I think um, it's something special. And this is no not to PWIs. I've never attended one, but I'm the only child in in my family. My uh, mother and father had four children. I'm the oldest. I'm the only child that went to an HBCU. So it, I can kind of do a compare and contrast. And what I will say is that there is no unit in no family environment like you find at historically black colleges and universities. You can find them pledging your fraternities and sororities. You can find them in your uh, 
in, in, in the different classmates that you have or the different friends that you have at any other institution, but there's something special and there's something different about HBCUs. You know, your, your professors, you, you stay in touch with them long after you graduate. Um, there are people to this day, when I go to homecoming, I may not have seen them since graduation, but when we see each other, we pick up like, like nothing happened. Um, for me, it was extra special being a part of the HBCU culture. Um, we all know marching bands are a huge part of that. Right. Um, and being in the marching one-on-one at South Carolina State, that gave you an instant family. Um, people don't realize that, you know, you, you just see the six to seven minute show during halftime, but don't know the work that goes into that. We, mm-hmm. we join uh, campus two weeks before school starts. Yeah. Um, and so we're constantly practicing. So you see these people every day throughout the entire year. So it just gives you that family as, uh, aspect. It gives you that grit, that grind. Um, we we you know work off efficiency. I tell people yeah. all the time we do the most with the little that we have. Yeah, yeah, and I respect that, man. And I can tell you that I've worked with a lot of people uh, at DHEC um, and other places too that are uh, graduates of historically black colleges, and universities, man. And there's a definitely a certain pride uh, that is associated with it. Um, and I and I and like you said, you know, you, you didn't attend a, a PWI, but I, I can tell you too that that pride is still there. The connection is still there. But I think the difference is that we look for to build that community within that within that uh, space as well. Much of what I've been doing since I've been on uh, the Black Alumni Council for University of South Carolina and stuff like that. Uh, talk about that uh, trustee position that you that you got too, man. What kind of inspired you to, to get into that? You know, that's that's a, a position most people think that you need to be at least 40, 50 years old, well-established for some years and, you know, well beyond, you know, but here you are 30, 31 years old and you jumped on the seat already. And that's absolutely the only, that's the reason I ran. You know, I, I wanted to run to change the stereotype and the narrative. Um, one thing for me that is important, um, my friend Antoine Seawright says it all the time, if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. And so many times we have people at the table who make decisions for people they can't relate to. Yep. So being the youngest elected trustee on my board and publicly elected from the state, you know, I have an awesome task and responsibility to remind my colleagues, hey, I was a student not so long ago. This policy will or will not affect us in a positive or negative light. So the whole process in itself um, to become a trustee uh, was pretty intense. (laughs) A lot of people don't don't see. And so in the state of South Carolina, we're different from a lot of other states. A lot of states have. Uh, your regular college trustees and then they have a a board of visitors or a board of governors because they're in a university system. So for instance, we'll take the state of North Carolina. Um, Your majority, if not all of your public institutions of higher education in North Carolina are part of the uh, UNC system. South Carolina is not like that. So uh, the trustees for each public college or university in the state of South Carolina You are elected by the General Assembly, so your state senators and your your state house reps. Um, So it can be very political because the trustees have higher and firing power of the president, where in other states they don't have that. That belongs to the Board of Governors. So we have college presidents. Other states may have college chancellors. So going through that process, um, building relationships, 
and also learning how to advocate for the right thing. You know, I'm, I'm always one for students. I say all the time, you know, your students, your alums, your faculty and your staff are your biggest assets at any college or university, but especially in particular HBCUs. And if they are not happy or they are not there, without them, you have no university. And so working day in and day out from a governing standpoint, um, because you can't interact in the day-to-day operations that's micromanaging, mm-hmm. but from a governing standpoint and setting policies for the uh, generations to come is something that I've been humbled by, something that I've, I've been honored to see the process and how things go. Some of the things we've championed have been freezing tuition. Yeah. Um, South Carolina State over the last year was only one of two institutions in the state that did not raise tuition. It was us and Francis Marion. Um, so doing various things that can kind of save uh, students money yeah. um, in a higher uh, education field that is always raising tuition and raising the cost of college has, has been something I've been honored by for the last two years. For sure. That's great, man. That's great work. And uh, congratulations on that appointing uh, as well. Thank That's you. huge. Uh, and, you know, the tuition freeze, man, that, uh, here, so most people know, but I'm in Indiana and uh, a couple schools have done that as well. Uh, Purdue University has actually uh, had like I think the last four or five years where they have froze tuition and I think that makes a big difference. I remember being in school over the summertime you come out to the state newspaper or whatever and then that, it comes in the mail and it's like July or August when you're about to go back and they're like oh South Carolina and other schools announced you know tuition going up like all the students knew tuition was going up you know what I'm saying it's not a surprise to us you know so uh, but it's hard. Like when you talk about tuition, if, if I can park it there for a second, I mean, it's 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 hard for any university to not raise tuition oh, on an sure. annual basis yeah. because higher education period is not being funded at the level that it should be. It's not. So every year your funding decreases while your expenses increase. Yep. And so the only way to cover up and to come out of a hole, because most universities work in a hole, yeah. um, is to raise tuition. Now that's just from a, a general aspect. Let's go a, a level deeper. Your HBCUs who are not funded at any kind of level uh, in comparison to schools, their size in their states always start from a lower tier. Mm -hmm. So because we don't have large endowments, we don't have large alumni giving bases, uh, we don't have, we may not have the corporate relationships or partnerships that other universities have. We're we're at a level below at a disadvantage. Um, And so you're constantly needing more students. You're constantly needing to raise tuition. So for an HBCU to say, hey, we're not going to raise tuition this year, that says a bold statement and that's a bold move of faith to say, hey, we're not going to raise tuition this year, so we're going to focus on other aspects by trying to bring in more students. Um, So when you look at education and higher education from a PWI HBCU standpoint and the decisions that are made, I think we have to look at it from an equity standpoint versus an equality standpoint. For sure. For sure. Definitely. Definitely. Uh, and you mentioned, uh, uh, you know, big endowments and stuff like that. I've recently within the last two years or so really been getting into fundraising and thinking about um, funds and stuff like that to support, you know, your black alumni for USC and, and different programs. We have a scholarship that goes to incoming uh, African-American freshmen, and we want to raise that endowment and stuff like that. So I know one of the things that 
like you said, many struggle with is the giving piece. Um, mm-hmm. What do you think? And, you know, there's no like expert opinion. We're not holding you to be like the sole representation of uh, HBCUs or whatever. But in your in your opinion, attending to and working within those offices as well, what do you think is some of the barriers to to giving? You see the 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 national pride that's there. People wearing paraphernalia, you know, what I'm saying have it rep like that. But when it comes to giving back, uh, what are some of the barriers that you think uh, come along with it's that? It's simple. We're not taught to give. Yeah. Um, one, we're not taught to give. Two, African Americans haven't had the capital to give um, from a historical standpoint as some other uh, races and persuasions. Uh, so, you know, when I was in school, I was always taught, you know, give back to the university. Once you graduate, give back to the university. Same so. Here. I'm asking myself, what does that mean? <laughs> so because I don't have money, I can't stroke a $10,000, $50,000 check. Give back means I'm going to come during the summer months. I'm going to help out with the band. I'm going to help teach mm-hmm. uh, the band members who are coming in. Uh, I'm going to come back and speak to different classes. Um, I'm going to come do what I can. But never once has anybody said, Hamilton, I need you to write a $100 check for this. So we're not taught what give back means. Yeah. We can give back in hours, but we've never been taught what it means to give back from a monetary standpoint. The other caveat to that is if I write a $10 check or give a $10 amount every month, I'm still giving. But because it's $10 versus $100, in my mind, I think my gift is insignificant. When every gift counts and every gift matters, we're also not taught to tell people that. Because if I was told that as a freshman, I might have been given $10 a month. For sure. So now I start the cycle of being philanthropic. Um, And back, since we're all philanthropic, back to that, um, you know, African Americans have not had access to capital as as many years. You still have some families who may be in their first generation of wealth. Yeah. And even if you don't want to talk about wealth, you still got first generation college attendees. Yep. Never mind first generation college graduates. So because we haven't had access to capital um, historically and because we have not really done a great job as a people with managing our funds, somebody come up, ask you for, hey, we're going to raise a million dollars in 10 years. You're looking at them like, I can't do that. Yeah. I don't have nothing significant to add to that mm-hmm. because it's a psychological thing. So I think, and, and I'm glad you hit on it because I'm spearheading a project right now uh, that a lot of universities are doing um, called 40 Under 40, where they recognize 40 alums under the age of 40. But for us, we're adding a fundraising aspect to it. Yeah. So it's to say, hey, with each honoree selected, you know, we're going to ask you for a $500 pledge and you make that pledge donation by a certain time. But not only that, we're going to ask you to go raise 500 so you bring in $1,000 completely. Yeah. So while people may say $40,000 is nothing, well, it is something. One, it teaches you, okay, I'm under the age of 40. I can still give my gift matters significant. Yep. Two, if I have an employer, um, that then opens up relationships for the university because if I'm the employee and the employer is proud of the employee, the employer may give extra on top of that. Yeah. And with the 40000 that you bring in, most HBCUs don't have a recruiting issue. We have a retention issue. Mm-hmm. And retention issues are due because student balances. So I may have gone 
to school on a scholarship. That scholarship may have ran out for a semester, but when I have my balance and I have to pay it off to register with classes for the following semester, I don't have enough money. Yeah. And so if you raise that 40 grand to help take care of deserving students uh, that have that balance, who can come back to school, you then offset your retention and your recruitment numbers so that your university grows. Yeah. You know what? And I think a lot of that information, people don't, uh, one, I'll, I'll, I'll start here. One, I think I'll go back to your point about not being taught. Uh, that's so true. We're not really taught to give. Um, but I think with me, just personally, it was in my nature to kind of give back to a place that gave me an opportunity to be where I am today. Right. I got a degree from here, which allowed me to get a job and move forward and take care of other things as well. Uh, and so it, for me, I think the experience that I had at USC, I wanted to make sure that experience was not only the same, but better as well. Right. So you talk about giving the hours. We can do that. And I think a lot of people forget that it can start with giving just the time. Right. Give us your oh, ideas. Give us your ideas on how you think we can retain uh, African-American students at the university. How can we uh, keep students uh, better performing in the classroom? You know, you, you mentioned first generation students. Many of those don't have the resources or the tools or just the mindset really going in to stay there. They can get there, but then the work comes and oftentimes it, it, it becomes a struggle for them and they don't have the network. That's the word I'm looking for. to necessarily lead on to say, I'm struggling in this chemistry class. I'm struggling here. You know, we had the advantage of talking to a parent who went to college and say, okay, I'm struggling here. How do you kind of figure this out? And so forth. Uh, first generation kids don't have that. And that's, that's, that's an issue. The other thing too, I think is going back to the giving pieces, giving the hours, it can start with that. And then it can start with those small donations. Uh, I've given, you know, $30 here. I've given $15 here. I remember when I graduated, uh, the alumni association like took care of, all the students first year in my Carolina. Mm -hmm. And that alone inspired me to stay in it. I said, I got a free year. You know what I'm saying? I can save up money. And then like for, for USC, my Carolina one year is only $55. You know what I'm saying? Right. Uh, and that that keeps you in tune to what's happening at the university. So uh, in the realm of what happens at PWIs and the issues that we face as African-American students and students of color, uh, you, you think about being able to have that voice to say something. Right. But it's hard to stay in the loop and keep those things from happening when you don't know. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And part of that is being invested in, and engaged with your university, not just coming back for homecoming. Of course, that's a great time. We enjoy that. Right. Uh, uh, but doing more too, so I, I, you know, I'm glad you touch on a lot of that stuff too, man. So I appreciate it. Um, we may have to link afterwards, man, because we have to some more talking, some I'm more ideas, for it, man. some I'm more ideas. You you talked about with this uh, forty under forty and the philanthropic piece. Um, I am definitely moving into that realm now into philanthropy. It's really uh, sparked a lot of my interest this last couple of years uh, as well. So we'll talk further, but keep it moving, man. Um, so you mentioned you are running for Richland County Council seat, District 8, where you grew up. I am. Yeah. So just discuss uh, that seat. And then for those, so I do have Indiana listeners. Uh, so real quick, uh, South Carolina, uh, we are a smaller state. Indiana's got 92 counties. We've got 46. Richland County is uh, where Columbia is, which is our capital city, uh, broken down into different districts, of course. And uh, Hamilton is running for one of those seats. So, uh, yeah, just tell us a little bit about that. Uh, what inspired you to make this run? Um, and was civil service something that you always wanted to do? 
So uh, Richland County is the second largest county in the state of South Carolina behind Greenville. Um, as you eloquently put, we have 46 counties. Um, Richland falls in the capital city. Uh, well, the capital city falls in Richland County. Um, all of our seats um, are by district. There are none at large for the county. Um, but yeah, um, District 8, the district that I grew up in, um, for my South Carolina listeners and really for the uh, people from the home team, if you think about the area, you've got parts of Forest Acres, parts of Decca Boulevard, mm-hmm. uh, parts of Two Notch Road, parts of North Brickyard, yeah. parts of North Springs, Clemson Road, Hard Scrabble. So oh, for my people who understand what I just yeah. said, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it is extremely diverse. It is. You know, I've, 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 if you look at a map, um, which all the lines are drawn weirdly, but we know that's intentional. Um, it really hits on what I call the microcosm of the county, right? And I say that because our county is so diverse. Um, and when you look at my district, it is extremely diverse. You've got a large Hispanic population. You've got a large Jewish population. You've got a, young, a large young population. The median age uh, of, of my district, I want to say, is 36 years old. Oh, wow. um, you've got a growing African-American population. Uh, the, uh, 46% of the individuals in my district are African-American. Uh, and so you see a wide range of constituents. Um, and so the incumbent that has the seat now, um, Mr. Manning, who has been elected since um, 2008, decided that uh, he wanted to retire this year. And so this left the seat open. Um, I, I talked with my wife, talked with my family. Uh, we prayed about it and we decided to announce early. So we announced November of last year that we would run for that seat. And I'm so glad we did it because it gave us an extra edge and an extra advantage. Uh, we were the first ones to come out. We got a head start on getting our name out there and introducing ourselves to uh, individuals and, and new partners. Um, it gave us an advantage on fundraising, which is extremely crucial because right now all fundraising has all but ceased. Yeah. Uh, we just wrapped up our, our end of quarter on March 31st. And I would say for the last month of that entire quarter, um, I did not publicly ask for funds at all. I asked for, I did a public uh, uh, ask for funds for five, 10, $20 to chip in on the last day of the uh, deadline. And we got a a tremendous, uh, we got a tremendous response. So Mr. Manning announced that he wasn't uh, running. We announced that we were running. Um, I, I'm running because, you know, for me, as personal said, this is this is our home. Yep. Um, I, again, I, I can't think of a better way to help prepare for our generation and the generation coming behind us than to sit at the table of, uh, of decision. Um, over the last couple of years here in Richland County, um, the county council has been under scrutiny for a, a wide array of things, but mainly for um, the Richland County Penny Sales Tax Program. This program was introduced in 2008 um, because uh, the county said, we want to add a penny tax to every dollar or everything that you spend in Richland County. And that tax would go to doing road projects and greenways uh, to help the infrastructure of uh, Richland County. 2008, that referendum failed. 
2012, it came back and it passed. Um, and it's, it's collected a large amount of money in the billions. Um, but to this date, we have a large number of our projects incomplete or not even started. And the projects that have started are over budget and behind schedule. So your, your three biggest projects being your hard scrabble, um, lane, uh, road extension, yep. which uh, extends it to four lanes. Um, I think you've got your Bluff Road and you've got your Sparkleberry uh, and Clemson uh, project. Yeah. That's $148 million over budget and three years behind schedule. Wow. And if you look at our county and how much we're growing in the development that is happening residentially, you don't have the road infrastructure to support that. So, you know, bringing the uh, transparency to behind the penny sales tax and what has happened. Um, in fact, the county has uh, litigation and a lawsuit with uh, the State Department of Revenue. So you really can't get the answer to these questions because it's one under litigation. Two, county council members have uh, signed non-disclosure agreements to where they can't talk about it. Right. So you really don't know what has happened and what has been spent and why these projects are behind schedule. Um, that's one of the platform items we're running on. Another platform item that I'm very proud of is bringing awareness to food deserts and food insecurity, especially right now. Yeah. In Richland County, over 65,000 citizens don't have access to affordable and healthy food options. Yep. Uh, and said, this is going to blow your mind when I tell you the zip code of 29203 yeah. has the largest number of diabetic amputees in the country. Get out of here. So when you when you think about it, that's your North Main, right. Monticello. So, yes, 29203 has the largest uh, number of diabetic amputees in the nation. It, well, when you ask the question, the obvious question, why is that? Look at the food options that you have. A lot of places, their only option is a gas station or Dollar General. Mm -hmm. And in South Carolina, we're not as progressive as other states with some of their Dollar Generals have fresh produce sections. We, we don't have that. And so a lot of people live in food deserts and food insecure areas. And when you think about what COVID-19 has done and what they have exposed, um, what you and I may consider we as being privileged when we go to the grocery store um, and, and grocery, groceries are gone and food are gone, um, we may consider ourselves in a food desert, but look at the people who are underprivileged. Yeah. The people who have to catch the bus to go um, exactly. to the grocery store, catch two, three buses, exactly. uh, who may have to walk to the bus stop. Yep. And then, you know, it's, it's great that the federal government has expanded these SNAP benefits, but what good is a SNAP benefit if I get to the grocery store and you have no food? No food. So, right. Yeah, that's, man. That's something we've been very proud of, as well as community safety and tying back into the infrastructure piece as much as we grow as a county making sure we have the uh, infrastructure uh, to support it yeah so a couple of things there too man and you, you kind of answered my 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 next question as well as get into your platform so i appreciate that uh just to uh give people a quick 
definition, food deserts can be described as geographic areas where residents access to affordable, healthy food options, especially fresh fruit and vegetables, is restricted or non-existent due to the absence of grocery stores within convenient traveling distance. Uh, for instance, according to report by the Congress of Economic Research, U.S. Department of Agriculture says about 2.3 million people or 2.2 percent of all U.S. households live more than one mile away from a supermarket and do not own a car. So just like you said, that's a problem. And we think about that area that you mentioned, uh, North Main and everything else at 29203 zip code. Uh, it is it is. It's shocking to hear that number, but it's not shocking, especially for someone, you know, I have a background in public health. So everything you have mentioned has been public health focused, man. And uh, I I hope, one, that this COVID-19 thing really shows people the need to fund and not only fund, but also uh, take public health strategies, take public health knowledge into everything that we do, because it gives everybody a foundation to understand that it's not siloed things. One thing uh, affects another and you have to think about everything holistically. Right. So if I go to the doctor and the doctor, one of those. So so, say one of those patients uh, in that zip code goes to the doctor and they're like, well, you're diabetic and you need to eat uh, better. And they say, "Okay, well, what am I supposed to eat? So you need to eat more fruits and vegetables and yada, yada, yada. Well, there's a a gas station up the road that's got Twinkies and chips and everything else for two dollars. But, you know, the nearest grocery store is not necessarily on the bus route. Uh, might not be able to afford an Uber or have somebody pick them up. And the groceries that they can get can be expensive. Even if you go to a a Walmart or a Kroger or anything else like that, Aldi, that stuff still adds up when people are on uh, limited incomes and, and budgets as well. Uh, and so- to make this thing hit home, say, and I know you know the area, uh, the grocery store that's right there at the corner of Decker and uh, where Northeast is, right behind the McDonald's, yep. that's vacant. Um, you got two grocery stores right there at uh, Hard Scrabble and Clemson Road that were across the street from each other. Yep. Both of them are vacant. In fact, one of them have turned into a Planet uh, Fitness. Planet Fitness, yeah. So a lot of these, and, and Whole Foods just left recently. Yep. So a lot of these big box stores and retail, one, because the trend of retail is declining yeah. um, across the country, but when you look at it from a, a smaller uh, group in a smaller concentration geographically, you know, what does that mean for the people? So if, if I take away a grocery store, um, if I take away two grocery stores um, right across the street from each other, but if I live somewhere and I have to travel more than a mile to get there, I'm in a food desert. Yep. And it doesn't matter what kind of socioeconomic status you may have. You can find yourself geographically in a food desert, even though you can afford food. Yeah. Um, and so every citizen, not just in Richland County, but across the country, every citizen deserves to have healthy and affordable access to food. Because when you eat better, you feel better. When you feel better, you do better. When yep. you do better, everybody survives and thrives. Yeah, man, for sure. Uh, those are just some of the basics, man. Those those. Uh Basic needs are being met, um, and, and that your your health takes on so many other things, and, and health is defined in so many different ways. But that's definitely important. I don't know if you remember, man. So we, you know, we're of course we're friends on Facebook and stuff like that. We have like that 
uh, Cavaliers, like 2007 group, I think it was. And one of our classmates put in there a couple years ago. I want to say at least it's 2020 now. Time is passing. Maybe three to four years ago where there was a co-op grocery store that was supposed to be coming somewhere, I think off the North Beltline area. Uh, Basically, you know, one group had the capital to kind of build the initial grocery store, but needed help to kind of finish financing it. So they asked people to put in $150. This could have been a scam. I don't know. Uh, but put in $150. And then once the grocery store uh, got up and running and started to make money, basically coming out of that initial debt, uh, people would then uh, get uh, money back out of it. So it, it was kind of like a you know community owned grocery store in an area that has obviously needed uh, groceries as well. So I don't know if you heard anything about that, but uh, it kind of went away. Um, I, I don't remember yeah. um, and, and, and don't know what that was about. Yeah. However, I will say uh, there is a farm to table group called Soda City um, here in Soda City Farms. And there's a, a, a farm out by uh, Hamilton Owens Airport yep. that does great. Um, but one of the solutions that we want to do um, from my platform and my campaign, um, at least, is when I get elected, I want to make sure that we invest to vote for Yeah. So if you look at what we're going through now and the shortages of, of food, you know, if we had local farmers and, and local spaces for these farms to thrive in Richmond County, you won't have to look far to support your local economy. So if I'm a grocery store, I'm buying my fruits and vegetables and food from a local farmer. Um, The local farmer, the more the demand goes up, you have to increase the supply. In order to increase the supply, I got to hire more workers. So you're you're keeping jobs local uh, while stimulating the local economy. Yeah. And, you know, in in times like this, um, being local is so important. It's another reason why I'm running for county council, because, you know, the county government aspect of, of civics and government, um, is, it, it affects your everyday life more than anything else. For sure. So I may never have the honor of meeting a Barack Obama or a Hillary Clinton or a Bill Clinton or a Kamala Harris or the list goes on and on. But I can see my mayor walking down the street. Um, I can see the chairman of county council at a meeting. Um, I can go to church with a school board member. Um, I can sit in the fraternity meeting next to a superintendent. You know, that's all local government. These people impact your local quality of life on an everyday level. And so, you know, we have to pay more attention to local elections. I know a lot of people get turned off from the rhetoric at the White House and the things that we see on a federal basis and a national basis. But if we zero in on the local and we we grow and grow local leaders that one day ascend to the national level because we grown them and we took care of home, that then uh, creates a groundswell of new leadership. Yeah, again. Uh, Got to have your own house in order. You know what I'm saying? Got to. Got, got to. to. I'm, I'm with you. Uh, I, I really believe that a lot of our problems or issues or just things that are happening in our country can be resolved from a ground up level. And I think that, like you said, that mindset is we look at the top first. We look at what the president's doing. The president's supposed to be the highest office in the country and he's the free leader of the world and everything else. And he or she hopefully one day 
is supposed to implement all these policies that then trickle down to us and make things better. When, like you said, we have that direct communication. And I think that's the thing. We have that direct line to people who make those everyday decisions, the superintendent. How is my child being educated? What is being taught? You know, is my child being taught strictly to pass a test or they taught being you know, to be more analytical and then uh, solve problems, you know, and things like that. Uh, we have access to those county council members who didn't think about, you know, tax, you know what I'm saying? Uh, things like that, which then, you know, you think about property tax or whatever. Does that go up? How does that affect me if I'm now a homeowner versus somebody who's renting and so forth or thinking of uh, renting and stuff like that and buying? Uh, so that is so important. And I'm glad you mentioned that, man. And I'm glad you talked about really stressing the importance of those local elections as well. Um, so out of the, the platforms that you have, and it, it might be, I think it might be the food desert, just what you talked about, but do you think that's your top kind of priority going in? What is one of the top well, things you want to tackle? Is If you would have asked me that question two, three weeks ago, um, I would have said yes. Um, and it still is a top priority, but I think priorities and life in general has changed um, since COVID-19 has hit. So I would say that, you know, community safety, because you can roll so much under that package. For sure. Um, Initially, when you think community safety, you think about policing, you think about um, your relationship with law enforcement. But now that has taken a, a, a totally different uh, look. So, you know, now it is your first responders. How are we keeping our first responders safe in COVID-19? Um, we ask and expect a lot of law enforcement, EMS, uh, firefighters, and I would venture to go a little deeper. I would say, you know, first responders and heroes are your people working in the drive through lines now. They're your grocery store attendees. They are your janitors. Um, they are your truck drivers, you know. So, when you look at that and the people who are working on the front lines, how are we keeping them safe? Um, And it's unfortunate that as of uh, today, um, we we saw earlier that the governor came out with several executive orders, but none of them were stay at home. And right before the governor took air, the governor of of Alabama, Kay Ivey, said, hey, we're issuing a stay at home. So that leaves South Carolina as the only state in the South, the only state east of the Mississippi without a stay at home order. Um, Richland County has over 224 cases of COVID-19 positive Mm -hmm. uh, cases in the county. Now that they have brought statistics and and analytics back to zip code, uh, the 29223 zip code has approximately 34 cases of positive uh, coronavirus tests. Yeah. When you look at the 29223 zip code, that is a large chunk of the district that I'm running for. Yeah, very popular. So it's, it's very popular. So I, I applaud the city of Columbia, Mayor Benjamin. I applaud the city of Charleston and uh, Mayor Tecklenburg. Uh, and I, I want to say uh, Greenville has done it as well. I can't think of their mayor's name off the top of my head. But all three of those cities, the biggest cities in the state of South Carolina, have issued stay-at-home ordinances within their city. Um, Richland County, who goes back and forth with Charleston County, depending on what day it is, um, with the largest amount of cases in the state, 
um, has not issued a stay at home. At the last special call meeting, um, a council member uh, raised the ordinance proposal, but because he sent his ordinance to the media before he sent it to his colleagues to review it, it died for a lack of a second when it got to the floor. Mm-hmm. Um, so now <laughs> where we are with it is we wait another week. We wait for staff to put together language to go into an ordinance. So one or two things can happen as a, as a little civics lesson. One, the chair can say, all right, we're gonna have an immediate ordinance. We're gonna look at this. Um, we're gonna get the uh, input of the council people and then we're gonna vote on it at the end of the meeting. That is that is on a special kind of ordinance, right? Then your regular ordinance, in the same way a bill is done, you gotta have three readings and citizen input. That could take weeks and months of time. So because the governor won't issue a stay-at-home order, because the county won't issue a stay-at-home order, our numbers grow triple digits by the day. And so citizens yeah. are constantly, and for the most part, they're staying home. But because we're not forced to stay home and there are no ramifications, we're going to take our chances and hang out. Right. We're going to go see people. We're going go to go to a grill. cookout. You know, <laughs> you know, you know we, yeah. we're just going to gather. And yeah. I know it's hard. I'm one of the most uh, people that love being around people. I yeah. love sharing memories with people. My wife and I had to cancel our baby shower because of COVID-19. Yeah. Uh, we buried my grandmother in the middle of COVID-19. I had to have a private family old, uh, private family only funeral mm-hmm. when my grandmother knew hundreds of people that right. wanted to come and share love and, 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 and share respect but couldn't do it. Right. And so, you know, it's an inconvenience to everybody, but you know, if we stay home and listen to the health experts um, and try to flatten the curve, you know, we're saving lives. Yeah. But because we're not doing it and because we're not forced to do it and because we don't have the discipline to do it, you know, our cases are growing. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think people just, you know, I think what's been hurting us too is the misinformation that can be put out there. Uh, that yeah. is such a, a a harmful thing in a time like this. Uh, I follow a lot of public health experts on Twitter and stuff like that. You know, that's my realm. And the amount of times I've had to see people on there be like, nope, that's false. Don't listen to that. You know, the, the, the um, relations to it's just being a, a another flu or anything like that. Um, and that just comes from a lack of, again, public health knowledge. I'm almost, I'm always yeah. I'm always pub public health man because people just need that basic understanding and you hear terms like flatten the curve and you know that throws a lot of loose so basically man we need to stop the get ahead of this thing right so and, and to yeah. do that we have to one test more people of course um, make sure that's available and then for those of us who you know if you're what they call in a silent carrier you know you're not necessarily you're asymptomatic. You don't, don't feel have anything, the symptoms, but you're still right. carrying it. You know what I'm saying? You don't know unless you go get tested. So if you're staying home, therefore you're reducing the spread. Uh, and I think people just, you know, don't really recognize how easily it can be spread or whatever. So, uh, yeah, it is taking it a step further, you know, from, from a national standpoint, I know certain States have done it. Uh, my guy house delegate out of, uh, the state of Maryland, Nick Mosby, Nick Mosby has asked their state, um, health, care or, or what would be uh, the same as DHEC here in South Carolina, but mm-hmm. they've as their state health agency, you know, all right, so we got the zip code breakdown, let's go a step further and break it down by race. Because what certain places are seeing is that it's attacking black men 
at an alarming faster rate than it would attack anybody else. Mm-hmm. And so we know that if you're over the age of, I think it's like 55 or 60, 60. then you're more prone to getting it. But if you're over that age and you're an African-American male, uh, certain places are seeing that death rate happen at an alarming uh, number. Yeah. You know, too, I think uh, with this whole thing, man, it just brings up a lot of things. You know, we're relying on medical professionals to do their job. And while there has been a lot of I know a lot of people in the medical field that are African-American people of color, but there is still a large medical mistrust among people of color. And uh, I think that also has something to do with it, man. That always will, uh, where we'd rather just be like, you know, I, I'm not sure. You know, are they making this up because of the the, the past, right? Uh, so that's yeah. definitely something. All right, man. Moving. And while we here? Before, oh yeah, go ahead. Before we move on, if I can't add, just let me take a second to thank all of the healthcare and medical workers. For sure. From uh, your nurses to your doctors to whatever it is in whatever area you serve, yeah. uh, the healthcare industry right now yeah. is overwhelmed, it and is. they are being asked to do a lot. They are being asked to do things they were not necessarily trained to do, but they're stepping in the role to do it, and yeah. they are heroes. Um, so, to anybody that is in any form of the health profession. Um, please know that uh, we thank you so much for everything that you do. Yeah. Uh, we're praying for you because we know you not only go through a lot, you see a lot. Yep. And it's hard to decompress what you see because you have to get up in a certain amount of hours and go do it again. Yeah. And you may see something worse than what you saw on the last shift. Yeah. Um, so for all that you do and, and for all of the work that you're doing and, and the cutting edge research that you're working to try to find this cure, man, we just thank you so much. Thank yeah. you, thank you, thank for you. For sure. Yeah, I know that I know that grind, man. I did it for six years, you know, you yeah. in the hospital. Uh, definitely didn't have to do it during a time like this. Um, and I remember when the flood happened in South Carolina, that stretched our hospital oh, system man. in Columbia thin. Um, you know, and, and this is this is I, I tell people this outbreak outbreak is exposing a lot of the inequity within our country and a lot of the uh, systems that are in our country that are not built to serve everybody and not built to handle something like this. Uh, our public health system, it's underfunded. Think about small health departments that are working off very small budgets and things like that or are trying to keep up and provide data and stuff like that. Uh, but again, back to the healthcare workers, there is a difference, people. Uh, healthcare and public health, they do work in tandem at times, but uh, there is a difference. Healthcare is more so doctors and nurses. Uh, they're treating infirmary uh, and illness. Uh, meanwhile, public health is working to prevent it. Just had to get that in there. But again, I'm, I'm with you, Ham. Both Thank you. extremely important. Yeah, I'm with you. I thank everybody who is out there. I know you're taking time away from family. Uh, you're probably already at times stretched thin in certain areas, but now you're being asked to do more going above and beyond. So salute to those people. We thank you. And uh, we hope we come out of this much better uh, so that things are better for you all as well. So. Cool, man. Uh, last couple questions. And uh, so give us kind of your vision for Richland County, man. And how do we get there? So my vision of the county being that we do have the capital city, I think we are the state's leaders. Um, I know we can be the state's leaders. I know we can lead when it comes to having jobs within the county. Uh, said one of my biggest frustrations is having peers like you and, and others that we've grown up who are brilliant 
um, leave the state of South Carolina and leave Columbia for jobs because South Carolina and Columbia, for that matter, doesn't have a job infrastructure that supports the education or supports the field that they want to go into. So while Richland County in South Carolina is amazing to raise a family, it's also very transient. So we've got a large military uh, population. Yep. We've got a large uh, legal profession. We've got a large education profession. Richmond County alone has two school districts. But if you don't fit kind of within those three areas, mm-hmm. really there's nothing here for you. Um, if I did not have, if my father did not have the business that he had, and I was blessed to go into it and have a job, I would not have lived in South Carolina or Columbia for that matter because what I wanted to do in my educational background for finance and for business, it would not support it um, because of the job infrastructure. And so I see South Carolina as a whole and then I see Richland County being the leader of that. Mm -hmm. You know, let's go out and bring jobs to the county. Um, so we can retain homegrown talent so we don't have to lose that talent. For sure. Um, So while we're bustling uh, residential-wise, you know, we need to be bustling Mm business-wise. South Carolina, well, Richland County is is an extremely hard place to do business because of the amount of taxes that people pay. So your hospitality, uh, the hospitality industry in in the county is thriving, it's booming. Um, But when you look outside of that, wages are dropping. Mm -hmm. And so we've got to somehow curve that as a county. We've got to find a niche. I think the city has done a great job in capitalizing on some things within those city limits. But outside of those city limits where you think more residentially, you know, we've got to do things. You know, Uh, we pride ourselves as uh, South Carolina being one of the top 10 states in the nation for uh, millennials to move to, specifically in Columbia. But if we're not keeping them, what good is it to have that statistic? Uh, We're such a large area. I think we have uh, six to seven institutions of higher education within the county alone. You know, that's a large amount of millennials. But if we're not keeping them here, if if we don't have anything to keep us interested, if we don't have any entertainment, if we can't go to a... uh, a top golf or we can't go to a movie theater with uh, food and reclining seats if we don't have things that yeah. keep us interested yeah. uh, as my wife said we don't have good restaurants and shopping if we don't have an apple if we don't have a cheesecake factory if we right. don't have uh, a H&M stores like that we're going to spend our money in your Charlottes in your Atlantas in your Washington yeah. DC and your Miami you know we're, we're going to leave for the weekend and come back, back. Um, and go to work. And so the county will miss out on a whole bunch of money because we don't have what's in demand. So, you know, when I think about Richmond County in the next five to 10 years, I think about us being the state's leaders um, in a wide array of of things, Um, but more importantly, growth. Uh, We put the cart before the horse a lot of times. We'll put up a 3,000 um, family unit apartment complex on a two-lane highway. <laughs> Cart before the horse. Yeah. <laughs> so you're, you're adding so much congestion to one area without saying, hey, we if we're going to do this, we may need to widen the road. The road. Yeah. So just make sure we're making sound decisions from a governing standpoint, 
um, so that, you know, we can see the growth that we know we can reach is, is vital to me. It's important. For sure, man. Yeah, I, I'm with you. Uh, and I I tell people all the time, I think my girlfriend probably, you know, makes fun of me all the time because I'm always like rapping for South Carolina. Uh, I got, yeah. you know, I, I tell her like, that's my home. You know what I'm saying? Like it, it raised me. I, the people I met there. Uh, I have a strong connection. That's why I'm still involved with my university, you know, the Alumni Association. That's why I have my nonprofit there. You know, I still want to operate there, but I had to make sure that I could take care of myself before I start giving back to others. Right. Uh, I can't pour from an empty cup. So uh, that was part of the reason why I had to leave, because I needed to. I pursued higher education like you. I pursued my master's degree, master's in public health. And in order to kind of get the pay that was equitable for the education that I had, I had to leave. Even if I didn't leave the state, I would have probably had to leave the city, go to Charleston or Greenville. And even then, that's leaving from the area that that raised me. Um in the capital city. So there's that. And, and I, I'm with you on some of these development booms where, you know, we're not thinking about the full picture. And again, if we're putting housing, that's going to be more cars on the road. Uh, I think about public transportation, man. Uh, that's such a huge need for people to be able to access the bus. I promise you, if I could have, you know, I'm, I'm like two minutes away from the village of Sand Hills. Uh, and if I could have like parked there and hopped the bus t- to ride to DHEC every day, I would have. I promise you. Mm-hmm. A light rail, a bus system that came all the way that far, I would have done it. Uh, because one, that just reduces our, you know, amount of emissions that are off into the air. Um, you know what I'm saying? More money, because I, I was recently been doing some research on uh, something I'm looking into with this uh, COVID-19 thing, I think about all the hourly and wage workers who are not able to necessarily have like that paid leave or be able to work from home and are missing out on money. And I was thinking there's got to be a way even outside of this for when wage workers, hourly workers and people who don't necessarily get PTO take sick leave or leave or whatever, that they're able to still be paid some way or some form. I think that's that's your your job status, your job choice should not uh, diminish your opportunities to take care of yourself or to enjoy yourself as well. Uh, so just looking into how we could generate some type of bank of time, money or whatever to be able to give to small business, uh, nonprofits or whatever to be able to support your employees. So just thinking about stuff like that. Um, man, too, I think about uh, the area where we went to high school, man. You and I saw when Decker was everything. You know yeah. what I'm saying? Columbia Mall was there, the Olive Garden, the Food Lion, everything. Yeah. And I was recently home maybe uh, three weeks, two weeks ago. And I usually like to drive through just to kind of see what's happening or whatever. But, man, it's it's nothing. It's sad. Nothing. You know what I'm saying? High school looks good. Northeast looks good. Yeah. Uh, but I just think about the area, man. I know the McDonald's is going to hold on strong and a few other things, but I know there's still neighborhoods over there. I know still a lot of people there. That could be, you know, another city center. You know what I'm saying? The mall. Yeah. I hope that can come back. Somebody's got to, you know. So, yeah. A lot of opportunity. Um, and I appreciate people like you who are willing to to be there and really put forth the effort to, to make it come to life, man. Thank you. Yeah. All right, man. Last question. Uh, and this wasn't on the list that I sent you. Who's your hero? Great. Who is my hero? Yeah. Wow. Um, I've got several heroes. Uh, I would say 
my grandfather, well, my grandparents and, and my parents, uh, I've been blessed to see leadership um, firsthand in my family. And uh, uh, now that you asked this question, it ties back in a question you asked earlier about where did I, have I always been in the civics and in helping others? Uh, I would say it's in my blood. So uh, my grandmother and my grandfather are both from uh, Clarendon County, uh, which is rural South Carolina. My grandfather from Manning, my grandmother from Somerton. Uh, my grandmother's father signed the original petition um, that led to Briggs versus Elliott, which turned into Brown versus Board of Education. And because her father signed that petition, his children, being my grandmother and her siblings, lost their job. So my grandmother lost her teaching job because her father signed that petition. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when I think about my grandfather, my grandfather in Manning, South Carolina, who uh, was a, a retired preacher before he passed, um, he saved money. You know, he took money that he saved to buy himself a vehicle, but instead, instead bought uh, a school bus to bus black kids to and from school when they would usually have to walk miles. And so that kind of is the core of, you know, servant leadership, um, taking care of others, making sure you lift as you climb. Mm-hmm. And then that coming uh, into my parents, my father coming out of a single parent household in Spartanburg, South Carolina, uh, in the project, um, one of seven siblings um, to, to raise to be one of the highest ranking execs in Bank of America and then go on to start his own business um, that has acquired uh, and has structured over a billion dollars in financing across the country. Or my mother, who is a graduate from Columbia College, but then went to Duke University School of Law um, and came back to Columbia and became one of the first uh, African-American women to partner with a major law firm in Columbia. And then even as that, an extension of that, um, I would say my wife is one of my heroes. Um, my wife, uh, whose grandfather, Reverend Daniel Simmons Sr., was one of the people uh, killed in the Mother Emanuel uh, tragedy in Charleston, South Carolina. Mm-hmm. And if you remember that time, um, there was a lot of emphasis placed on family members that spoke at the bond hearing. She was the one that spoke on behalf of her family, uh, one forgiving Dylan Ruth, but then leaving the courtroom in the, uh, the famous words saying that her grandfather lived in love and preached love and the legacy of his love, so hate won't win. And taking those words and starting a global campaign against hate crimes. Um, I mean, who would think about um, starting something in the middle of a tragedy, in the middle of one of our nation's darkest times to pre- uh, to preserve and present light and protect people of hate crimes and bring hate crime awareness across the nation? And by fact, South Carolina is one of four states in the nation with no hate crime legislation. Yep, same so, here. You know, when I think about heroes and people who I admire and look up to, um, I, I can draw the list up and go up and down the list, but I really don't have to leave outside of family yeah. because, you know, everyday people and, and everyday uh, uh, family members have done so much. I just recently lost my grandmother um, at the age of 92 some two weeks ago. And, you know, at her eulogy or at her funeral, I spoke. Um, she battled with dementia for a lot of years. And if, if you know anybody that has that, 
that debilitating disease, you know, one of the things is they forget a lot. And so one of the things I said was when you think about the span of 92 years, um, while I may not remember your name, there are some things I may want to forget. Mm-hmm. Uh, you may want to forget an encounter with the Ku Klux Klan. Uh, you may want to forget what it was like to grow up in rural South Carolina where uh, they didn't treat you right or they wouldn't expect you to come from nothing. You may want to forget losing your spouse to over uh, 53 of over 53 years to a a cancer that you just found out about two, three months ago. So, you know, when you think about your heroes and you think about what they endure and if you're blessed to still have grandparents, you know, cherish that time, spend time with them. Um, I know we can't do it now and, and, and it makes it very hard, um, but in technology kind of brings some kind of relief and assistance to that, but man, talk to them. Yeah. Um, ask what they endure, what are their stories? What did they grow out of it? Because the wisdom that they can give you can pour so much into you and bless your soul. So, you know, my heroes are family. Um, they, they've sustained and provided a lot and, and have made who I am today. So I'm grateful for them. For sure, man. That's great. Uh, that's great. A couple things with that, man. I, I, uh, want to say condolences to your family, uh, for the loss oh, of your grandmother. You. Uh, and it's a blessing that you had her around for that long, yeah. man. Um, I unfortunately did not, uh, get to have mine around that long, uh, due to breast cancer. Uh, but man, I, I, I'm with you in the fact that I think a lot of what I do now is because of my family. Uh, I think about my grandmother. I think about her creativity, uh, not just with arts and crafts and things like that, but her proponent to always share black history with us. Uh, born in 1943, you know what I'm saying? She experienced a lot and, uh, you know, in Virginia. And uh, I just think about, you know, what she went through if I had the chance to talk with her. And then I think about my parents, too. Uh both of them served in the military. And I think coming up from single parent households, brothers and sisters and stuff like that, they were always givers and uh, they passed that along to us. We, my brother and I were fortunate to, to live in a very nice neighborhood, um, had friends play with, play with safe streets, good schools. You know, both of you, you know, you and I are products of Richmond School District too. Uh, one of the better funded and uh, districts in the state, of course. And, uh, you know, I had those advantages and I, and I don't take that for granted because I know a lot of people don't. And I think that's what drives me to give back the way I do uh, and to help kind of disrupt a lot of these unfair systems, because that's that's what's happening. There's a lot of unfair systems that are that are affecting people. Uh, and two, man, you, you mentioned a lot of South Carolina history. So for my uh, Indianapolis, Indiana listeners and everybody else who's not in South Carolina, man, I, I want to tell you all how important South Carolina is to our nation's history. Man, yes, we are yes. we are a pinnacle within this state, not just not just from Charleston to bring in slaves, but even afterwards. A year before Rosa, Sarah Mae Fleming was Preacher. was uh arrested and uh basically same situation as Rosa, but nineteen fifty four. 
here in Columbia, uh, in Lower Richland County, man. So we we have those those pinnacle pieces, man. And a lot of great people are from South Carolina. Uh, and you know, every time I'm watching TV, I'd be like, I point to my the TV screen. I tell my girlfriend, like, oh, he's from South Carolina. You know what I'm saying? Yep. And you know, we're we're producing athletes, actors, politicians, and stuff like that, man. So I definitely look forward to everything that you're doing and man, how you're pouring you. into this into the city into the state man i'm excited uh and i wish you the best in your election period uh when does that happen <laughs> hopefully if everything so, is like normal as of right now and again everything is fluid and changing with COVID 19 uh, our primary race is june 9th okay um once we get to the primary that primary winner will go to the general election november 3rd Gotcha. So that is our race. Um, uh, if, if I could give a South Carolina shout out to Do it. some people who are in Do Indianapolis, uh, my guy, my brother DJ Louis V, who is uh, with the radio, one of the radio stations, ninety-eight point three. Yeah, my home girl um, out of Norfolk, Virginia, Ash Matt, who is at another radio station there in, in Indianapolis. Yeah, ninety-six three, uh, I think. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and and also uh, uh, my brother of Omega Sci-Fi and chapter brother from Zasa, uh the maniac himself, Darius Leonard with the Colts. Nice. Um, so <clears throat> it, it, it's it's a lot of South Carolina people out there in we Indianapolis in there. We in there. Uh, doing some good stuff. My guy James Coleman from South Carolina State. Yeah. Um, so yeah, um, South Carolina is is we're world renowned leaders uh, when you look at the military. When you look at uh, South Carolina State University from the Orangeburg Massacre, um, when you look at the uh, first African-American students that integrated the University of South Carolina, um, there's there's just so much history you can dive into. Um, But yeah, our primary race is June 9th. If you're interested in our platform or interested in getting involved, you can go to our website, www.grant4sc.com. Follow us on all social media networks at Grant4SC across the board. Uh, we'd love to connect with you. We'd love to interact with you. Um, and I'm I'm so grateful and proud of you, Said, man. You're doing amazing things. No matter where you go, you always transcend transcend culture and you know you're a leader man I'm, I'm honored to know you I appreciate it likewise man and and for those of y'all like I said me and Ham went to high school together everybody knew this was coming right we knew Ham was going to be the guy to, to run for some seat so I look forward to this uh, the next five to ten years however long it may be in the county seat and I also look for this mayor run uh the columbia um you know what i'm saying if that goes further man the governor you know we're we're all for it i really appreciate everything you're doing man and thank you as well i definitely want to make a impact no matter where i go like i said south carolina is always home my parents are still there um and that's that's where my roots are you know what i'm saying i'm not i wasn't born there uh, i was a product of military family but i lived there my whole life went to school there educated there everything so that is that is that uh lastly man i need to know a couple things where can i get a grant for sc sweater i need that it's still cold here in indy 
GrantForSC.com is on the website. Got we got it. t-shirts because we're in the middle of season. Nice. South Carolina is unique because you can experience all four seasons in a day. It, yep. So this morning when I woke up, it was 46 degrees. And yeah. when I came back from the grocery store, it was 79 degrees. Yeah. So yeah. we got what you're looking for on the website. We got uh, some merchandise. Excellent. Um, www.grantforSC.com. Cool. I appreciate it, man. Appreciate it. Uh, with that being said, man, I, I want to encourage everyone to take the time to get to know the people who are leading their local government. We often are very focused on what's at the top in the national races, but honestly, where the differences are made, where the change happens is on the local level. And that's the state, the county and the city level. Uh, get to know who's making decisions that govern your life every single day. Uh, if those decisions don't align with what you believe in or don't effectively help you speak up. Uh, you're sitting next to these people, as Ham mentioned. Uh, you go to church with them. You see them in the grocery store. Uh, they may be in your organizations uh, and stuff like that. Ask questions. Hold your leaders accountable. Let them see that the people that they are representing are there and that they have a voice as well. Uh, make sure that you they know you're not going anywhere, you know. Knock on the door, send them emails, write letters, uh, call up the, the offices, uh, let your voice be heard and let your interests be known. You can make the change. You can be the change, uh, be the change you want to see in the world. All right. So thanks for listening. Be sure to follow said talk on Instagram and Twitter at said underscore talk. Uh, click the link in the bio to listen to the podcast on your favorite platform. We're on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play. SoundCloud and iHeartRadio. So we're there as well. And be sure to cop a said talk tea. Uh, that's on the link too. So all proceeds go towards my nonprofit organization, Palmetto Pride Sports, which is a low cost club and travel sports organization for minority youth who play sports with low minority representation. Those include baseball, softball, lacrosse, tennis, soccer, and volleyball. Uh, check out our website at palmettopridesports.org and follow us on Instagram at palmettopride803. Uh, stay tuned for next week. And as always, thanks for listening.